The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. 101 or eBio 101, all the other numbers. Uh, usually we'll start these with a very brief one slide overview of last lecture. Uh, with a slightly different angle on some of the topics, and then and then we'll go over uh, a preview of today's. So last session we were, was more an emphasis on the biological side of computational biology, and this one will be more a computational side of computational biology. But obviously both of them are we're trying to interweave them already. Uh, in the first one, we were specifically looking at the simplest components and the simplest systems. Uh, in, in um, living systems and computational systems, and how self-assembly here defined broadly to include symbiotic relationships between uh, different living forms and different uh, uh, human inventions. And uh, self-assembly is a very critical part of biology. In the mathematics that we use, both uh, symbolic and numeric, you must know about the approximations when we talk about the various theories going from uh, the, you know, subatomic to the population level. There's an approximation at each level that subsumes previous uh, approximations in it. And when you represent uh, floating point numbers in computers, there are further approximations which can accumulate as you do uh, calculations. And we saw some of the ways of coping with this such as uh, using higher precision arithmetic in Mathematica. The other uh, aspect of this was, was uh, differential equations as a, as a tool in studying replication, in particular autocatalytic systems, which uh, uh, were illustrated by this ver really simplest possible differential equation where the, the uh, incremental increase in y as a function of time, the, the vertical and, and horizontal axes, is a direct function of y, um, a, a simple linear function of, of the, say, the population size, uh, its growth being proportional. Then we add this extra term, 1 minus y, to, to, to represent, rather than just the simple exponential curve that you get at the beginning with uh, population growth and infinite resources, as you get close to the maximum resources here, uh, 1, you start to uh, either plateau as you would if this were an uh, ordinary differential equation, or you start to oscillate as you do this with an iterative solution, which we illustrated. And if the, the rate constant k gets large enough, then you get uh, chaotic behavior where it can go close enough to zero that you're effectively simulating a, uh, an extinction of the population. This, this, the issues behind uh, replication and approximation come together or came together in the concept of mutation and in particular the mutations that occur that might occur in single molecules, life being full of very important single molecules such as DNA. And here, even though you know there must be stochastics underlying this process because it is a single molecule, there has to be some way of overcoming it because we went through a calculation that indicated the 46 chromosomes in every one of your cells in your body 
uh, has to be replicating quite faithfully or else you'd be getting cancer. Uh, and that noise is overcome by the single molecule-ness of the DNA being compensated by a multi-molecule-ness of, uh, of uh, energy-containing molecules such as ATP and associated proteins and so forth. This, so now we've brought together the uh, approximations and replication and what this, uh, what replication leads to are pedigrees. Pedigrees are an example of many that we listed of directed acyclic graphs. We'll have more pedigrees today. In a certain sense, the ultimate pedigree will be shown today. And, uh, and the mutations also can be nicely modeled by, in, in, depending on the exact application of your thought of, about mutations, by the binomial, the Poisson, and the normal distribution. Uh, the normal being continuous and the other two being discrete. And selection figured prominently and optimality figures prominently in biology. You typically won't lose bets betting on optimality uh, for at least e exactly the circumstances under which the system has um, been subjected for millions of years. So this is the outline for today. Again, supposedly more on the biological side. We'll go through uh, how purification has played a central role in the uh, reductionist approach to biology and biochemistry and how, the, how that purification is, is also the antidote to the re reductionism in that it provides a way of creating synthesis and going back up to systems. Systems biology is the second topic and this is both relevant to the models, applications of models, and uh, making the interconnections of the components uh, ultimately in a synthetic loop of discovery and uh, recreation, perturbation. Then this is the ultimate pedigree that I was talking about, the continuity of life and how it applies to central dogma as an illustration of one of the most robust algorithms that we have in computational biology, which is the genetic code of truly uh, elegant discovery and elegant partly because that's the, what it's, the biology underlying it is so amazing. Then we go into the issues behind how we get quanti qualitative models from quantitative data and then how we go from those quantitative, mo qualitative models and fill them again with the quantitation that's required for true simulation, prediction, and design. And then we end up again on mutations and selection just as we did last time. Okay. Familiar face, the periodic table. Uh, just like last time, there are six elements that are involved in the in the three major biopolymers in the cell, DNA goes to RNA, goes to protein, is the central dogma, and all of those can be made of these six elements plus counterions um, of the polyanionic. So there's a typically sodium, potassium, uh, and other counterions. And so the total of 19 elements you can find in almost all life forms, and I would say uh, Many of the other uh, elements on here that at least have some stable isotope in nature have, probably have some story that some living organism could tell you if you were interested enough. And that might make a good thesis project or a good project for this class to talk about what organisms do to either detoxify or to use in some exotic way uh, each of the stable isotopes on this chart. Now, most 
organisms do not use these in the elemental form. They typically, the, in the middle here, are elemental forms of these uh, elements. Oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen are commonly uh, used, um, elemental forms. But, but there, there exist life forms for which none of these are really re required. I mean, for example, oxygen is toxic to a variety of so-called um, constitutive anaerobes, and uh, uh, nitrogen gas is only used by nitrogen-fixing microorganisms. Ga each of these elements exists in a gaseous form. They tend to be more reduced, that is to say, more hydrogen-containing on the far left-hand side of the slide. They tend to be more oxidized on the right-hand side, and, and in the oxidized form tend to be uh, found often as salts. Um, here, uh, carbonate, for example, being the salt form of carbon dioxide in the oxidized form that's, that's fixed uh, by plants and, and uh, photosynthetic bacteria in the oceans. Um, and unfortunately, in its CO2 form, major global warming gas. And you can see that every, every of the basic elements here has, uh, can be obtained uh, as salts. Many organisms require much more complicated versions of this. Uh, require eating uh, macromolecules like steak and, uh, and maybe have even very more, much more exotic ones. As we purify, uh, when we represent the elements in that periodic table, the, those were the hard work of chemists that had to purify uh, each of those elements, not just as molecules, but all, it wasn't sufficient to get hydrocarbons it, it had to get pure carbon, uh, and then, but that was only the starting point for determining not just the properties of the elements, but putting them back together as molecules. And this reduction down to elements and then resynthesis back to molecules meant that was part of the proof that they really understood what the molecule is all about. And the same thing can be obtained in living systems. We typically uh, start with molecules that are a covalent. Uh, connection in some sort or another, and when they non-covalently associate, they're called assemblies. Typically, the assemblies that, that most biologists work with are assemblies of, of proteins or proteins and nucleic acids, but there are many, many kinds of assemblies, and these assemblies blur in their, in, in, uh, their definition into uh, organelles. Organelles are uh, basically assemblies that start getting large enough that they can be seen under, micro, under simple micro microscopy uh, scenarios. Uh, organelles are not always, but are often uh, bounded by lipid membranes. Uh, these are hydrocarbon uh, containing bilayers or multilayers. Anyway, the distinction between macromolecular assemblies and organelles is, is uh, soft. And then cells are collections of these assemblies, again, typically bounded by a, a phospholipid bilayer. And, uh, some organisms are cells, uh, unicellular organisms are the vast majority of organisms on Earth, and they are sing many of them are single cellular or aggregates of cells, while multicellular organisms such as uh, yours truly and everybody in this room, uh, it, it can contain up to 10 to the 14th cells uh, that are direct and re regulated descendants. Now, what, what are examples of purification methods that are actually used in, in uh, in, on the road to computational biology. We have uh, chromatography, 
electrophoresis and sedimentation are very common ways of separating molecules, including protein molecules, and assemblies, actually organelles, cells, uh, as well, can be separated by these media. Uh, by far, one of the most common ways of uh, separating these uh, uh, protein molecules is by uh, chromatography and electrophoresis. And uh, we'll see some examples in just a, a couple of slides. A very incredibly powerful way of uh, separating entities in general is represented here on the far right-hand side. This is clonal growth, or clo this uh, is essentially an analysis of single molecules or single organisms. Each of these uh, colonies, which might be growing on a petri plate about the size of my fist, uh, is a, uh, rep represents the growth from one starting cell to 10 to the 8th or so final cells. Finally, going through an exponential growth, just as we uh, went through in last class, until the point that they have uh, uh, depleted the local resources near them or have a uh, produced enough toxic waste products that they have slowed down their growth to form these colonies. Um, in certain organisms, they'll just keep growing until they get to the edge of the, of the petri dish. But this is much more general than just growing uh, bacterial uh, colonies. You can see it uh, almost any um, uh, organism that has a limited ability, to limited mo motility. These will form little clones. Uh, such as this happens in various tree populations, for example. Also, it represents the ultimate purification. In one step, you're getting uh, something that's, that would, by combinations of different chromatographic steps and electrophoretic and sedimentation steps, you might ha have to serially do several of these steps in a row to get a molecule or an assembly purif purified, while here, in one step, by essentially limiting dilution. You, you dilute the, the, the uh, molecule of interest to the point where it's a single molecule. Well, now, if they don't undergo clonal growth, this is not terribly useful because it's very hard to study single molecules, even if they're well isolated from all the contaminating molecules. Uh, there are ways, and we will talk about them in the course, but, but uh, you need, ideally you need some way of amplifying them. There, is a, there, oh, there are ways to amplify nucleic acid molecules. Um, such that they exhibit clonal growth like this. And in, and in principle, any new, either, either by uh, putting them into a bacterium so that the bacterium behaves in this manner, carrying along with it the artificial piece of nucleic acid you're interested, or you can do it entirely with uh, enzymes so that the nucleic acids replicate and make these colony-like objects. Now, this is a idiosyncratic view of this purification, of this process by which we uh, as scientists have gone through purification and then are returning to much less pure systems as a subject of our, uh, of our research. Uh, this is, we'll call this three revolutions. Uh, in the pre-1970s, we had column chromatography, so-called chromatography in that last slide because literally the substances that were being separated were highly colored, as were those bands uh, in the last slide, those two uh, dark bands. 
hence the name chromatography. It's really a separation by, uh, by the properties of the solid phase and, and the properties of the mobile phase and the molecules in the mobile phase being separated by differential absorption to the, to the solid phase. Gel electrophoresis and, uh, and sedimentation in a, in a uh, gravitational field. These were all part of, the, of this amazing revolution that allowed us, allowed scientists to get um, molecules, assemblies, and cells um, purified away from other contaminants. Then recombinant DNA did that trick that was in the lower anhydrous slide of the previous slide, which was uh, uh, going directly to purification by going to uh, single molecule uh, isolation by dilution to the point where you had less than one molecule per cell and less than one cell per square centimeter on the Petri plate. That gives you single step purity of the gene, which which in effect allows you to get single step purity of whatever is encoded by the gene, the RNA, the protein, or the enzymatic activity. This was a, a huge uh, change. Suddenly everybody was spending a lot of time uh, so-called cloning of DNA and uh, sequencing it. And almost every thesis and paper of that time, everybody was turning into molecular biologists in order to do this, and it became very routine and uh, very time-consuming and expensive. And so the third revolution was automating this and uh, using <coughs> economies of scale so that all the genes were obtained at once and sequenced at once, rather than going through here, you where you would have to go through the entire library of all the genes just to find your favorite one. And then you would sequence that one, working uh, hard on isolating away from everything else. While with sequencing genomes, it was more a process of Every, everything you came upon was interesting, and so you didn't have to do quite as much time selecting. You just made it more of a production effort. But the subtext of this was not just automation and, and, uh, and economies of scale. It also started to return us to thinking about whole systems and doing things systematically. And this was uh, particularly valuable in the, in the in the sequelae of, of genome sequencing, which was functional genomics, which we'll talk about quite a bit in this course, um, applying the same uh, attitude to, uh, to other biological measurements. And this returns us to whole systems. Now that le leads us to the discussion of whole systems uh, modeling. Um, systems biology and the models therein. So we have. Uh, this is just one of the earlier papers. There are many now that, that are trying to, we're trying to grope our way towards what we mean by system biology. But this is uh, sort of paraphrasing from that paper. We want to follow these four steps as a protocol. Define all the components of the system. Systematically perturb and monitor the components of the system so that uh, we can do this either genetically or environmentally, meaning changing the, the small and large molecules that program the, the, the uh, biological system from the outside. Then refine the model, which, which you had uh, maybe be before uh, perturbing it, such that the predictions most closely agree with observations. Listen carefully to that, that statement. Refine the model so that predictions agree with observations. And then do new perturbation experiments to distinguish among the model hypotheses. We do this. Uh, 
in a cyclic fashion, basically going back up to item two so that we're perturbing and monitoring. Now, what is the, what's the critique of this systems biology manifesto? We have those of you who have read books that predate the Genome Project in systems biology uh, say, hey, this this what's new here? This is the way biologists were doing it even before recombinant DNA. So it is an old approach, but the new spin on it is that it's the word all components. Typically before you, the components would be chosen and the perturbations would be chosen um, based on the latest biological fad or what was available technically at the time based on the history of the component studies before that. So it's, it's, it's a significant deviation to now even set as a goal all components. It's a very challenging goal um, has been met in the case of certain genome sequences. It has not been met in any functional genomics that I'm aware of, but it certainly is a goal and we're getting asymptotically close to it, just as we got asymptotically close to genome sequences. To systematically perturb has the conceit that we <coughs> can list all the sort of perturbations we would want to do and then walk through them in a systematic way rather than a, um, uh, a more whimsical way. Now, so, that, so that's, this is new spins. But what's missing from this uh, manifesto in the previous slide that uh, in systems biology? For one thing, and I, I cautioned you in the previous slide, that when you start fitting your model to the data and refining your model, there's a problem of overfitting. And I'll, this will come up a couple of times in, the, in, the, in this course. Um, if you have enough adjustable parameters, you can fit almost anything. And so you have to be careful that as you refine your model that you state exactly how many adjustable parameters you have and, uh, and how many <coughs> data points you have that are truly independent for fitting that. So we have methods to recapture unautomated data. Um, this, there is a step implicit in the previous one, actually explicitly stated elsewhere in some of these papers, uh, that, you, that when you have, uh, as you're developing the model, you will draw not, up, not only up upon the systematically collected data, but also upon the literature. And the literature, as we'll see in, in the next couple of slides, uh, not only has unautomated data, but it has models that are derived in a variety of, uh, <coughs> of somewhat undisciplined uh, or, or a different discipline. It's not, not an electronically compatible discipline. And so there's a, there's a process by which one captures this automated data data and integrates it with the automated data, which can be uh, uh, either challenging or uh, pathological. Uh, so we need to make more explicit these, the logical connections that are used for deriving these uh, systems, biology, diagrams, and quantitative models. Finally, when you when you make these perturbation experiments, if they're done uh, using the, uh, they, there's a new optimization that needs to be made in order to integrate them with the systems biology loop. Um, as I mentioned in the previous uh, talk, the thing that makes the killer applications in computational biology so far are <coughs> searching, merging, and checking. If you can find uh, ways to, to, to search, merge, and check large data sets, um, via models, then you've made a great deal of progress, and that should be the, the goal here, too.
So what the systems biology will do, um, I think possibly more well illustrated by this slide in the last uh, talk than by some of the examples so far in the literature on system biology, but the goal is to be able to work with very simple parts, this reduction down to the basic parts, and then move up through models that are hierarchical and include all these intermediate steps um, to very high-level ways of describing, understanding a system. This one, ha you have the unfair advantage that the entire thing was designed from scratch by humans. Um, but in biological systems, you, wa you want to reverse engineer it to the point where it has some of the same flavor of forward-engineered systems, and then uh, develop ways of simulating the systems so that you can des design new versions of it. Whenever you find yourself doing an experiment or computational biology, you're going to be asking yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I in this classroom? And uh, whenever you do that, uh, you should ask yourself why a bunch of times until you get down to the real core uh, reasons. And so, for example, we were, in effect, sequencing the genome prior to the Genome Project. We were spending hundreds of millions of dollars of NIH money and other, every funding organization's money, um, doing it in a very inefficient way. And we knew why we were doing it, I think. We wanted to map variation in, in sequences, variation within a species like humans that make us different from one another, variation between spe different species, which is comparative genomics, item three. And in between item two, we wanted to have a complete set of human RNAs, proteins, and regulatory elements, and for every other organism, too. I just use human as an illustration because it was called the Human Genome Project. And we wanted this complete set so that we could go back and measure them systematically. Um, well, this was not articulated in any, in any, in any way. It was, we never did, we didn't use the words complete or systematic very much prior to the Genome Project. And if we said these were the reasons, then we could ask why do we want to map variation? Why do we want a partial or complete set of these various um, molecules and regulatory elements? And why do we want to compare them in different organisms and in different environments? And the answer to that would be that we would want to make quantitative biosystems models, such as the ones we were describing the last couple of slides, of the molecular interaction at all the levels extending from atoms to cells to organisms and populations of organisms because it's the population upon which selection acts and it's the population that uh, allows us to uh, understand and make useful products. And so when we ask why do we want to make this biosystems models, we have three reasons, some of which we touched upon, all of which we touched upon last time when we asked why do we model, same thing, why, why are we collecting all this data to model, we model so that we can share information. and. Uh, so that we can uh, construct a test of understanding. One of the tests of understanding is making useful products. Okay. So on that theme of why and making useful products, I will, I will uh, put this in the context of, say, the projects you'll be doing for this class. I'd like to stimulate you to think about this early on in every class. I'll mention something. And you might say, well, grand challenges grand and useful challenges are uh, really not a great place to be doing a short-term uh, uh, project for a course. But actually, I think that the piece that you choose should be a piece of a grand challenge 
because it really gives you the context. And so I'm just going to walk through these three classes uh, of challenge, um, not, to, not so you will feel limited, but you, so that you will feel uh, broadened in your, uh, in your mandate for what you can do. So at the simplest level, kind of reflecting last lecture, simple, uh, going from atoms to small cells with small genomes, maybe even minimal or miniature, um, just like you want to downscale um, uh, electronic components. We have, uh, if we really want to show that we understand the, the biosynthetic route that will be the topic of today, this really key mechanism by which we make, go from DNA to proteins, um, we should be able to take it apart and put it back together again. That's the way we, that's one way of proving that we really understand it. That has not been done. Uh, in a purely synthetic route. We have taken a part protein synthetic apparatus and put it back together again, but we have not completely synthesized the synthetic apparatus. That sounds odd, but that's, uh, that would be one step. But the, the impact of that would not be just proving that we can do it. The impact would be that we can now uh, make a simple biological system that is self-replicating, uses proteins, and allows us to, to link the atomic changes to population evolution. In populations of humans, this would be uh, daunting computationally. But when you think of populations of self-replicating molecules, such as the simplest one last week, which was these trinucleotides being uh, ligated into hexanucleotides, you can start to conceive of actually connecting the atomic modeling with the population modeling, which is basically the breadth of this course that covers the whole breadth. It would collapse down is that simple model. But more even more importantly, we can start engineering smart materials, materials that have important properties that, uh, in a certain sense, compute in, in chemistry. Uh, we can make a whole alternative chemistry, a stereospecific, meaning uh, sensitive to the actual handedness of the molecules, which is so critical in, in pharmaceuticals and in enzymatics in general. This can be engineered by getting a handle on the, on the synthetic machinery of life. Okay, so that's one, that's at the simple end of the spectrum. What about going from, uh, that's going from atoms to cells, how about cells to tissues? When we typically, <coughs> and many of you uh, either already in the biotech pharmaceutical industry or feel that the research that you might be doing as a graduate student uh, would contribute to that in some way, however indirect, um, the way that you would uh, program a computer, we might fill up this room full of laptops and go pouring random uh, chemicals on them to see if they then produce the graphical user interface that we desire. This would be the drug uh, screening approach um, to programming. And, I, and obviously the way we program actually is we work in the natural uh, biopolymers of, of uh, computers, which is the strings of zeros and ones represented uh, in the computer. And we program those as long strings. And so the equivalent in cells if you might be to manipulate the genome itself. We're doing genome level programming either at DNA, RNA um, level at, uh, via nucleic acids. This is not an either or. This is probably something that where one is augmenting by studying and programming at, the, at this detailed level. And uh, to do this Manipulation of stem cells is a growing uh, avenue of research. 
This, this gives us access. The stem cells are the cells that are capable of replicating and differentiating into almost any cell in your body. And rather than dosing your entire body with a, a drug, you can now specifically deliver a particular cell to a particular place and have it take its, uh, its role as a replacement. And so this is, this is the kind of programming I think we should be thinking about as a grand challenge. Remember, grand challenges are not going to happen tomorrow. You have to do some piece of it. Question? So the question is, uh, what do we know about, or rephrasing the question, what do we know about a protein before we know its fold? And actually, historically, we knew more about protein, much more about protein function than we knew about their folding. Um, because the, the, and we'll get to some of the definitions of functions in just a moment. But you can study it biochemically in terms of what it binds to, what, what uh, place it, it, it holds in the replication of the cell, and so on. We, we do know the folding of of most proteins, and that will be part of the post-genomic era. We'll be producing the three-dimensional structure and um, biochemical function of all the proteins. But, but here you're asking for changing that, changing the genome programming, right? And then, and then of the parts that you understand. Okay. I mean, obviously, we do engineer a variety of physical and biological systems without full understanding. Um, it will, an even grander challenge would be full understanding. Here, we're trying to take subsystems that we do. Um, it could even be a highly integrated system where you do model the entire system, but there will always be gaps in your knowledge, just like there are gaps in the human genome sequence. And the final illustration, uh, number C, is uh, going up to the most complex systems that, we, that we're dealing with, which would be um, uh, morphological systems um, and even uh, and the populations that, that result from that. And here, uh, we will be you, you can deal with morphology in a way that uh, at the molecular level all the way up through uh, morphology of assemblies, of cells, how cells aggregate, and all this can be modeled and uh, used to great effect, whether it's smart uh, materials or uh, replacements in human systems. So let's talk a little bit more about these components and how they're interconnected. Whether we are uh, taking these components apart or putting them back together again, we need to understand how, how many of them there are and, and, uh, and how we're going to access them in databases. I'm illustrating this with three uh, organisms that uh, are nicely poised to show the extremes on the left and right and something in between. So this is mycoplasma pneumoniae, oh, sorry, mycoplasma genitalium, one of the smallest um, uh, living organisms and smallest genome. Its genome size is a little over half a million base pairs. The worm centered that it's elegans, one of the first metazoan multicellular organisms sequenced with a little less than 100 million bases, and uh, the human at 3 billion bases. Neither the worm nor the human is completely sequenced, um, uh, despite uh, some possible indications to the contrary. There are quite a number of gaps in each. Uh, the m many bacterial genomes are completely sequenced, including mycoplasma. The number of DNAs in each of these, you have one circular genome in uh, many bacteria. Some have multiple uh, chromosomes. The worm has seven chromosomes, and human has 25. 
those of you who have studied biology or, or just listened in the last lecture where I said we had 23 pairs of chromosomes to segregate, um, you nevertheless, there are 25 different kinds of molecules. Uh, I'll leave that as an exercise for you. You can ask me uh, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, the number of genes encoded in these DNA depends on your definition of gene. If we define it somewhat arbitrarily um, as a piece of inherited material that encodes one or more RNAs, where those one or more RNAs share some of the, uh, the same inherited material. So uh, in principle, there's inherited mater material which is not nucleic acid, but for most intents and purposes, these, the genes that we'll be interested in um, do pass through RNA on their way to protein. And uh, the number of genes in mycoplasma is roughly one gene per kilobase. It's about 500 genes or so. Um, the number in worms is estimated at um, around 20,000. And in humans, it ranges from uh, 30,000 to 150,000. And there are betting pools on exactly how many there are. And uh, there probably should be a betting pool on when it is we will know how many there are. Uh, it's been announced at various times. Uh, but it, 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 to some extent, the exact number um, will have some softness to it because some of the genes will be of marginal utility to, um, to humans. They will have uh, been of some consequence maybe many generations ago, but on a day-to-day -day basis, um, they will be hard to detect the importance of whether that gene is present or not. Um, in terms of RNAs, uh, we t the, in bacteria, you have a tendency to have more uh, genes than you have RNAs because the genes will be constructed in uh, a, a series such that one RNA can make it through multiple genes in, a, in an operon, then that uh, Operon will then make multiple proteins, so you might have slightly fewer RNAs than you have uh, genes. In uh, worms, uh, are an example of a multicellular organism that also has operons, where genes will be strung together. They tend to be shorter and fewer in number, um, but then they, but that doesn't just reduce the number of RNAs. You can then increase them because you have alternative splicing, where the RNAs will be made up of multiple pieces called exons which are stitched together by a, uh, a specific biochemical machine, um, splicing machinery. And that can happen in more than one way. They tend to be in a linear order in the genome, but there's exotic mechanisms like transplicing where you pull up an ex exon from a completely different part of the genome and, and splicing them together. So this number is larger than the number of genes because one gene can produce multiple RNAs by alternative splicing. Uh, <coughs> for proteins, there's additional diversification in that you can modify the RNAs in, in various ways. In prokaryotes, the number of RNA modifications is relatively limited, but the number of protein modifications starts to go up. You can have proteolytic modifications, um, phosphorylation of various amino acids, and, uh, and in multicellular organisms like worms and humans, the number of modifications reaches up into about 250 different amino modified amino acids of the basic 20 amino acids, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, the number of cell types 
in a very simple organism in a very simple environment might be as little as one. We don't really know how many cell types there are, but, but basically all the cell types for an organism like mycoplasm look fairly similar morphologically and probably functionally. Um, on the other hand, the worm has 595, 500, 959 uh, cells, and those three significant figures, which is pretty good for biology. And uh, these are non-gonadal cells. And the reason we know this so precisely is the entire lineage, the entire division of all the cells have been mapped out for this worm. And we'll show this a few slides from now. Humans, on the other hand, uh, not only is the number of, uh, the lineage is, is very poorly defined for most of the cell types in the human body, uh, and even the number of cell types is unknown. Um, some people will estimate as few as 200 cell types. This is just a sound bite that is made up, as far as I can tell. Some people say 200,000. Uh, it's probably a safe bet that a given, at any given time point, there are fewer than 10 to the 14th cell types. This is probably not very reassuring for those of you who would like to, say, measure expression <coughs> in all the different cell types. Um, because 10 to the 14th expression uh, patterns would be quite a number. In addition, uh, you have uh, various developmental stages where, let's say you have, uh, as you grow from single cell to 10 to the 14th cells, you pass through stages and what may be, appear to be the same cell type in, at one stage and an earlier time point may have completely different gene expression. That is known. Um, even though the total number of cell types is not. Okay, yes. I meant to, to uh, caution you that, just that, that the terminology here is used uh, quite uh, loosely. Gene, ex gene expression is often used interchangeably with RNA expression, uh, clearly, uh, and then in almost the same paper they will refer to as genes as protein encoding genes, completely sidestepping uh, uh, a large number of RNAs which really are never uh, uh, translated into proteins, such as ribosomal RNAs, R, uh, tRNAs, um, uh, small nuclear RNAs, and a whole variety of regulatory RNAs, RNAIs, and so forth. It's becoming very important, this class of RNAs, which stay as RNAs. So be careful when when people use genes and RNAs interchangeably or genes and proteins interchangeably. Um, okay. So this is, this is uh, an example of molecular morphology, a particularly elegant uh, example that illustrated last time. It, uh, the, in a certain sense, the morphology of these two strands of DNA uh, greatly go a long way towards explaining the uh, inheritance and fidelity of, of the basic macromolecule um, which stores the information. What we're going to do is expand on the, on the look outside of these bases which form the, the base pairs uh, down the, that have stacked up along the core of the DNA to look at what, how they're actually covalently attached, what the precursors are when we go from monomers to polymers. We're going to talk about polymer synthesis for the next few slides. Um, so in order to get this, this, this exquisite base pairing here, which a recent article has argued is, is optimal, of all the different base pairs that could have formed um, in the prebiotic times, uh, this is, these are some of the optimal alignment of hydrogen bonds. But the hydrogen bond just guides the base pairing. 
the polymerization occurs, uh, something not shown on this slide, but shown on the, sub on the next slide. Here are the, the two, two examples, two very similar uh, bases for DNA and RNA. These are the, the monomers that are polymerized by enzymes, polymerases, to make uh, DNA and RNA. So on the top is the deoxy ATP, and below is the ribo ATP. Ribo ATP is distinguished not only as a precursor for polymer, but it's one of the key uh, biomolecules providing energy or transmitting energy from one part of the cell to another, one machine to another. If you looked at a, a network diagram of the metabolism, uh, ribo ATP would probably be one of the most, is one of the most highly connected nodes in that graph. Uh, it's, it's connected hundreds of times in a graph where m many things are connected once or twice. And this is the structure. This is the base here in skeletal form and space filling form. The space filling form, uh, aside from the colors, is, 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 a, is getting to be a more accurate representation of the electron density, sort of the electron density you might observe in crystallography or in quantum calculations. But the skeletal form allows you to see some of the hidden atoms a little bit better. You can see the nitrogens are color-coded by, by uh, blue, and the phosphates and sulfurs, in this case phosphates, by yellow, and the oxygens by red, carbons gray or black. And so what you see is the only real difference between the deoxy ATP and the ribo ATP refers to this oxygen at the two prime position, which is uh, the deoxy. Uh, they, both, they both share the, uh, this, the, the, this ribose and phosphate, which, which were what was not represented on the previous slide, are the, are the repeating backbone. You go from this three-prime hydroxyl, the, the numbering here, by the way, for the ribose has primes after it to distinguish it from the numbering of the bases. These were studied chemically by chemists and numbered independently, and so when they were found in the same molecule, you had to have a separate. So that's the reason throughout the rest of this course and the rest of your life probably, you'll be referring to things going from five prime to three prime. It's because the, the uh, people studying the bases won over the people studying the riboses. Uh, anyway, so the last two phosphates just provide a higher high energy bonds and these, these by uh, equilibrium is pushed so that, uh, so that this whole uh, splitting and polymerization is a very favorable uh, in terms of free energy. Okay. Now, as we discuss, so that those were the nucleic acid components, and then the proteins that they encode and the proteins that are required for the replication of the nucleic acid components are made up of a simple derivative of glycine, which can be represented full name, three-letter code, one-letter code. You should, you should learn the 21-letter codes because they're very valuable in this course and in bioinformatics in general. This, again, the same color coding here. You have nitrogen, carb. This is the central carbon. That's the alpha, and this is the carboxyl group. So this is, as an amino acid, this is a witter ion with a positively charged nitrogen and a negatively charged carboxylate. And the way you represent this in a computer, you can either represent it as a pretty picture here, either skeletal or space filling. That's of course represented by zeros and ones, but it's not a very useful way for searching, merging, or checking, right? It's going to, uh, if you rotate this slightly in three dimensions, it's going to give you a completely different image, and it'll be hard to search. Um, you could represent it as the 
three, the coordinates, the x, y, and z coordinates of each of these atoms, um, and that is something that you can search. But you also need to represent it in a, in a way that uh, represents the hierarchical uh, structure by which these things form covalent bonds and so that you can recognize groups, groupings of atoms into polymers, polymers into assemblies, and so all the way up. And this is an example of such a hierarchical description, which would be, you know, recognizable to all the computer scientists here uh, if they were comfortable with uh, some of the biochemical terms. So here's the configuration of this thing we're calling glycine. Um, um, by the way, there will be a lot of jargon in this course for those of you that are computer scientists. Um, the point of this course is not to give you an encyclopedic knowledge. It's more to flesh out the concepts. This applies both to computer and biologists in the group. Uh, and so if you learn a lot of facts, I won't hold it against you. But, uh, but every time you see a piece of jargon and you think I haven't defined it, just call it, you know, uh, you know, Fred or George or something like that. It's an arbitrary name. It will be defined in the databases, and that's what the database is for, keeping track of this. But you will have to understand the concepts. And the concepts here we're trying to illustrate are different ways of representing the uh, molecular definitions. Here, by describing the, the, the syntax as you would um, in, in breaking up an English sentence into its structure. Um, so you have here, it's, it has a substituent of a backbone. Here, in order to try to tie together all amino acids, you've made something that's a little nonsensical, which is you talk about the L backbone of amino acids. All the amino acids except for glycine actually have a handedness. That is to say, if you hold them up in the mirror, it looks different from what the thing that you're holding in your hand. If you take, a, say, a space-filling model, hold it in the mirror. And the reason is that you can have these two hydrogens here in glycine will have an actual side chain coming off in amino acids. And if it comes off um, here, then it's a D amino acid. And if it comes off of the other hydrogen, uh, it's an L amino acid. So here you're saying natural amino acids are L amino acids, and so you want to take this L backbone and put a substituent on it. That substituent is HYD for hydrogen, and it's linked uh, through carbon one to another hydrogen and so forth. Nil means nothing. And here's a, another way of representing it, slightly more compact. You can think of this as just one long string, even though it's on multiple lines. Here's one that's definitely at the bottom line, is, uh, is you've got this CH2 group, this methylene group, uh, right in the middle, uh, bounded by this positively charged nitrogen and negatively charged carboxyl group. So you can see these, these uh, nested parenthetical ways of ind indicating the hierarchy. This allows you to search through complicated databases of compounds looking for shared properties, say, of all the drugs that bind to a receptor. Whether or not you know the structure of the receptor, if you know the structure of the drugs, you can do a uh, structure-activity relationship. Uh, you're asking what, why the particular order? Well, you can think of this like with your calculators. You can either enter, enter them in the natural way that you do it, or you can do reverse Polish notation. And, and different, different ways of setting up syntax have this different thing. If you really wanted to research this, 
you'd look into the SMILES definition. This is a particular chemical definition, and they could uh, justify this much better than I could. Um, so there are 20 amino acids in uh, the simple genetic code. There are 280 that are post-synthetic modifications of these simple 20 amino acids. We've been talking about glycine as the basic backbone shown here in black on this slide. Um, and in blue are these, these side chains that lend it its, its chiral nature, its, its nature that has a mirror image. And each of them provides the properties which are color-coded here. The orange have the property that, that the side chains and hence the, the amino acid in the protein are hydrophobic. They, they try to get out of water. They, are, they, are not, uh, they try to bury themselves in other hydrophobic moieties like other amino acids like this in the core proteins or in lipids. Um, which are hydrophobic as well. Uh, <coughs> green are hydrophilic. Blue and red are also hydrophilic, but they're not only that so, they're also charged, the red ones being negatively charged, as, as in the red of oxygen, and blue being positively charged, as in the blue of nitrogen. And the yellow being the, the sulfur-containing, moderately hydrophilic amino acids. You can have more than one chiral center of symmetry, like this, this mirror image. You can have two uh, such centers as in threonine. So now we're going to put these amino acids in the context of a, uh, the central dogma, going from DNA to RNA to protein. We want to uh, illustrate this in, in the case of a very complicated machine and a very elegant and simple algorithm. This algorithm is simple because biology cooperates largely with us. The code, unlike many codes in biology, is, is uh, fairly universal, found in almost all organisms in the same form, and it's very strict and with, with relatively few exceptions, where you have three nucleotides which encode one amino acid. So there are 64 possible trinucleotides, right, four to the third power, and most of those trinucleotides encode some amino acid. The exceptions are stop codons indicated here, little dashes in this table. And so, we'll just go through the table, because that's the algorithm part of it. Uh, we have uh, the color-coded amino acids in here in a single letter code. Remember, orange is hydrophobic, green is hydrophilic, blue is positive, and uh, red is negative amino acids. And what we have is an example would be AUG on the messenger RNA. This is the going from DNA to RNA is uh, decoded by uh, a complementary trinucleotide on this transfer RNA. Here it's sort of unfolded, uh, but in, rea in reality, and in, in, in the last lecture and in the next couple of slides, you will see it more folded up. But this is unfolding it to show the 76 nucleotides or so of the transfer RNA, uh, which has been preloaded with, a, with a, an enzyme which is truly the miraculous part of the genetic code, which is the amino acid tRNA synthetases, which recognize the transfer RNA, recognize this methionine away from all the 20 other 20 amino acids, and put it on the right transfer RNA. Once that's done, then the rest is base pairing. Mostly very Watson-Crick base pairing or something like it, where the first two positions dominate, and the second one can wobble. Here a G and a U is not part of the ATGC canon of Watson and Crick, but it's close enough 
and it allows uh, some ambiguity at this third position. So, for example, UUU not only encodes phenylalanine, but UUC can also. Here the, the triplet in this table is UXU, where the X is UC, A, or G along the top of the table. And so you can look this, you basically look up the trinucleotide in a table like this in the computer, and you can find the corresponding amino acid. This allows you to go basically from a DNA sequence to an RNA sequence to a protein in the computer. Um, now what's, so okay, that sounded too simple. Well, I'm going to give you a couple of slides that illustrate why it's more complicated. First of all, why it's more complicated biochemically is not only do you have that amazing um, protein molecule, sometimes one or two subunit proteins are sufficient to take these tRNAs here encoded by red and green um, where one amino acid is going to be added to the growing peptide chain on the other, and the two, and the two business ends of the molecule that are responsible for handing off amino acids, where they get coupled together in this polymerization reaction, um, these two uh, transRNAs have been properly charged by the amino acid tRNA synthetase, but then they have this require this truly huge apparatus, one of the largest molecular machines in the cell, arguably similar or larger than any other one, um, which, which, which allows the messenger RNA not shown to bind to these two trinucleotides and the tRNAs, and then a catalytic reaction occurs where the amino acid is shifted from, from one tRNA to the other, making a growing peptide chain. And this chemical reaction here is shown with all these circles and arrows uh, for the, for the uh, uh, chemical bond reformation is actually catalyzed by an RNA. This is the second RNA catalyst that we've talked about in this course. The first one was briefly mentioned on the subject of replication in last class, where, where you can find RNAs that uh, can be engineered and pr probably existed uh, in other scenarios, which can uh, replicate um, using small molecule precursors. So by far, most catalysts that we will be dealing with will be proteins. But in order to get to proteins, we need this really complicated ribozyme, RNA enzyme, to uh, catalyze this. Here, the, the white are the base pairs, the Watson-Crick and non-Watson-Crick base pairs of the RNA. The gold is the um, backbone, ribosome phosphates, of all of those RNAs. And then the blue are the uh, proteins, which you can see are mostly out of the uh, periphery not involved in the, either the enzymatic reaction or the recognition reaction that does the decoding at the trinucleotide codon level. This is uh, made up of a total of three RNAs. Here you, here you see two of the RNAs in the large subunit. There's a small subunit that fits on top of this, which would mask the reaction we were interested in. Uh, uh, over 50 different proteins, and this complete three-dimensional structure is known um, from a variety of different organisms now. Okay, now, after the break, we will then take this uh, table that we had and the complex uh, biochemical machine we have and turn it into a program that does the central dogma from uh, DNA to RNA protein. So take a, a brief break and come back. We'll talk about this. <laughs>